May I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show. Another episode of Straight Talk with D. DeMar. It's a little rainy up here in New Jersey, but as always, from NJ to NC, I'm in the studio with my right-hand man, Mark Lee. So, Mark, tell me what's good in your neck of the woods, my brother. Uh-oh. We're going to get him back in just one second. I think he jumped off the car, but uh, we waiting for him to get back in. I'm going to let the music play for this two seconds because he's back now. Mark, tell him what's good in your neck of the woods, my brother. Everything is going well here in the uh, Triangle area, you know, Durham, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, and all of that fun kind of stuff. We actually had a uh, showing of artwork over at the Haytown Heritage Center. They got a new exhibit up there. I think it's about 11 or 12 artists, and they were displaying some work, so we did that on Friday. And there's actually an exhibit that deals with the uh, black experience in various European countries. So that's shown as well. So I know that among the countries is uh, Denmark, France, England, and various other European countries. Uh, So that's uh, just kind of like exploring our history and uh, going to some of those European countries and what we experience when we go there. So it's more of a uh, historical kind of display less of the traditional kind of artwork because it's more of a narrative kind of form, but it does talk about some of the things that go on when you go to those various countries and gives some historical perspective as well as some current events kind of perspectives as well. So definitely an interesting exhibit. I know folks will be interested in that. And then uh, this weekend, we've actually got tomorrow um, Sweet Chariot, which will kind of look at uh, some of the traditional spirituals and things of that nature. And then over the weekend coming up, we've got our film festival, our annual film festival. So there'll be a lot of filmmakers in town celebrating uh, African-American Southern filmmakers. And so we're looking forward to that. It's going to be one dealing with uh, funeral homes and things of that nature. It's going to be one that's going to feature Bree Newsome. I think this one has got uh, Mike Anderson involved as well. You know, Mike has been a past guest here on our show and everything. Mm -hmm. So definitely some films that folks will enjoy checking out. Desmara Gatewood has got a film there. That's uh, Curtis Gatewood, who is a civil rights person here in the area. That's his daughter, and she's got a film uh, that is uh, dealing with some current events kind of stuff as well. So definitely if folks want to go uh, to the uh, Haytai website, there should be information about that, which is www.haytai.org. And there's also, I believe, a separate website for the film festival as well. But either way, they can find out about the activities going on with the uh, film festival and see this great programming that is coming their way very shortly. Like I said, it'll kick off on uh, Thursday and uh, run all the way through Saturday uh, night, Saturday night. And then, you know, Saturday night going practically into Sunday morning, we've got an event that they do every year. It is definitely very popular by a lot of folks because that is something that's been going on annually for a number of years, and that is our erotic poetry slam. So a lot of folks really are into that whole thing, and they love coming to check that out. So they don't even start that thing till about 
midnight and it goes into the wee hours and yes, wow. folks do get a little bit on the uh, wild side and they have some good times <laughs> with those poems and everything. But uh, it, it's definitely an interesting thing going on. So as a part of the uh, film festival, though, coming back to that, there's going to be a 100th anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance, an area that you are very mm-hmm. familiar with. So that's going to be going on and that'll be taking place on uh, Saturday the 15th. They are also going to be showing on uh, when, uh, Thursday to kind of kick off everything. That morning is the 25th anniversary screening of John Singleton's Higher Learning. So there are definitely some uh, good films that will be coming years? in. Then there's some 25 Ooh. years since Higher Learning came out. John Singleton yeah, put that movie old, out. <laughs> <laughs> that means it's yeah, almost feeling- 30 years. Wait, wait. So if that's 25 years. That means that it's almost 30 years since Boys in the Hood came out. I feel old. Hey, you, you got it. We're getting old. I hate to say it. <laughs> wow. Oh, my. Isn't that something? There's always something we, we, down we in Durham, def- though, man. Golly, y'all keep it moving down there. We keep it rolling. I mean, even the following week, I think that next weekend is going to be the Nevermore Festival over there at the Carolina Theater, which is going to be dealing with, like, uh, horror and suspense kind of movie. So, yeah, we try to keep things rolling on a on a regular basis, and that's just what's going on, like I said, around Haytown. But, you know, the Durham Arts Council has got things going on. There's things going on at the Golden Belt, which has got, like, different art galleries and things of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. There's different art galleries throughout the area. Duke's always got things going on. Central has always got things going on. Even Durham Tech has got things going on in the cultural world. So, And, of course, we've got, like, some world-renowned uh, people doing stuff even on the high school level. Mr. Tab does a lot of great things with the Hillside uh, drama program, and Xavier Cason does some stuff uh, with the music stuff tied into that high school as well, and that's just one of the high schools. So, like I said, we do try to keep things moving on the uh, cultural and the social tip, and of course, you know, this is a rich tradition of activism as well, so the activists have always got things going on as well. You know, that Alexandria, who's been on the show a number of times, is running for the um, school board. We've got a couple of folks that have been on the show in the past, like uh, John Rooks and LaVon Barnes that are running for different offices. So, yeah, we've had some past guests Mm -hmm. that are either trying to hold on to their seats, like Brenda Howarden, or trying to gain some seats, like what Alexandria is doing, I believe John is as well. So we've got folks, you know, definitely out there doing the campaigning and things of that nature. So we we try not to have a uh, dull moment here in the Triangle area of North Carolina. Try to keep things ripping and rolling and, you know we gotta do that because the world is also a mess as well because you know we got people over there yeah. partying idiots i mean they're not just partying partying folks i mean first of you know i heard rumors that he said that he could pardon himself after andrew yang had earlier said that he would think about partying to kind of like alleviate some of this tension between different folks in different parts of society so Andrew Yang, the Democratic candidate, said that he might consider pardoning Trump if he was elected. But even no matter what people might think about that, I was too through when Trump came up there and gave the Congressional Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh. I'm sitting there going like, Rush? You got to be anything is Not possible. Rush. Anything, bruh, anything is possible. Look at who is giving the awards. So that should not surprise you. Not one single solitary now, see, we, I, I, you know what? I can only say, you know what? Let's let's just flip the script real quick. Football is back. The XFL yes. had their inaugural games this weekend. 
none of the uh, silliness from the first iteration is actually good football. I'm rolling with the New York Guardians. They took out the Tampa Bay Vipers yesterday, 23-3. to So I'm just waiting for uh, another week of good football. I think it's like eight weeks, but that's better than beating a blank and having to wait until August. So, you know, football's back, man. Just like the crazy yep. man is at 1,600, football is back, y'all. Hey, you know, we got football back, and that's a good thing. And, we, and you are right. We do have a crazy man at 1600. I hear the bell ringing, so I know one of our guests is there, and that's what I was hoping they would get here earlier. But, you know, that crazy man unveiled a proposal to, earlier today that, if approved in full, would lead to steep funding cuts to social assistance programs and slash projected long-term spending on Medicare and Social Security, items that the president had vowed to leave undisturbed by his administration's budgetary chopping block. So, you know, I guess he's already feeling empowered and feeling like he can just do whatever he feels like, but he's going to go after some stuff that a lot of folks already are depending on on a regular basis. He said the four, they say the $4.8 trillion budget proposal boosts defense spending in the short term, but slashes federal spending with politically unrealistic cuts of more than 37% to the Department of Commerce, more than 26% to the Environmental Protection Agency, and nearly 13% to the Department of Transportation. I don't know about you, and I just depend on mass transit, but friends of mine that are driving on cars and everything are always complaining about how rough the roads are in various parts of the nation, and he wants to cut the budget of the Department of Transportation, which is actually the folks that help fix the roads. So I don't understand that at all, but, hey, I'm not the one that is trying to make these decisions and everything, and I think this We've got a crazy man trying to make the decisions. That's just my take on it. So he's already taking his, taking his axe to all kinds of things that do not need the axe taken to them. You know what? <laughs> we are less than nine months away, brother. We are less than nine months away. It's time to start getting serious about who can replace the madness. Nine months, yeah. y'all. We got nine months. So we've made it this far. Let's get these nine months in, and let's get somebody out. And let's see what we can do with that. Um, we're going to rock this commercial, and then when we come back, we'll have a Duque Arimu here with us on Blog yes. Talk Radio. It's Straight Talk with Dean and Mark, y'all. Sounds good. The old renaissance is the new renaissance, standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company, uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way, Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance Whitbread, the neighborhood original. All right, Aduke and Remo, welcome to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. You are now on the line. Thank you so very much. How are you doing, Aduke? This is Mark over here on the line with you. I've met Aduke a number of years back. We've met over at the National Black Theater Festival. I um, 
guess I can be credited with uh, introducing her to one of her business partners who became a uh, life partner, and then they went their separate ways, and now they seem to be back to being life partners again and everything. <laughs> so I guess I can be blamed for making that introduction way back when when uh, I was living yeah. in Winston-Salem, where the National Black Theater Festival was taking place and everything of that nature. So I did that many, many years ago. So we've gone through many decades, and Aduke has done a lot of great work in the artistic community, being a playwright, just being an amazing lady all around. I'm still trying to figure out how she's putting up with trying to be a change agent, because she does consider herself a change agent during these mad times that we are in because uh, we're in some definitely some interesting times, but we need even more change agents that we've actually got going on. And I know that that's one of the things that Dookie prides herself in is trying to use theater as a means to try to communicate with people and solve some of these world problems that we've got, not just national problems, but world problems that we've got going on. And she's done it with some very uh, humorous plays, some serious plays. She's actually covered the spectrum as far as I can tell in terms of her playwriting abilities and things of that nature. So I guess that's where we'll start at. Okay, and like I said, I know we've got a number of questions that we do want to touch base with you, but we are definitely in some hard times for artistic people. I mean, as I just mentioned, I talked about the cuts that were going on in some of the departments, but we know that there are definitely cuts in the artistic fields as well. We don't even want to think about what he's going to do to the uh, various artistic organizations that are national in terms of cutting them. We've had other presidents, including some that we liked, that did some of those cuts in those organizations. And now we've got this madman, so there's no telling what kind of cuts we might get. So how do you deal with trying to create this kind of great artwork that you do during these hard times when we're in this middle, middle of this political madness? Well, my philosophy has always been to be self-sufficient with the black art form. Um, I grew up in Harlem. I, I was born in Harlem, and my parents, in fact, were, were migrants from Savannah, Georgia. My mother and father moved to, to New York City, and I was born in Harlem, USA, and I was raised in Harlem until I was six years old, and then we moved to Brooklyn, and Brooklyn was a training ground for me. I always say to people, if you know anything about New York, during those times, Brooklyn was really hardcore, and what we what we learned to do, and I learned at an early age, is to not depend on necessarily outside funding, but to galvanize your talents in your community. And I was heavily funded in New York by, I call it the black community. Um, I What I believe is that I never take no for an answer. Mark knows that about me because he, he roamed with me one, one National Black Theater Festival. Dean, Mark was my right arm. We put up one of my new plays okay. from Sonata, and Mark uh-huh. went everywhere with me. And we actually auditioned at the festival. We had 13 actors in the production from all over the country, and the play was so highly received that it then went to New York University. And William Patterson, who directed Two Trains Running on Broadway, he was our director. I believe that there's okay. no such thing as no. That's my first thing. There's no such thing as no. There's no such thing as I don't have enough money. And there's no such thing as we can't get the money we need because what I find is that we need to give the um, the third world community a lot more credit than we do in terms of economically empowering our art form. I have been really blessed. My middle name is grateful. I am so grateful to the fact 
that I was able to orchestrate even in New York City um, the entire political community. Um, I had congressmen on my board of directors. I, at one point, Mark, I had 33 people on my board of directors because I was a wild child in New York. Um, I had 33 people from every um, walk of life. I had political people. I had church people. I had theater people. I had regular people. I had Caribbeans. I had Native Americans. I had Latinos. Because to me, um, the, the power of the people is what funds our production. It really does. I don't, and I did get heavily funded by NEA, National, um, the National Endowment of the Arts. I was funded by NISC. I got funded by Bill Gates. But initially, I funded myself by putting together what I call, and I still do it like that, Mark, with my last production. I put together teams of, of people, and I say, this is our goal. We don't take no for an answer. I tell them how much the budget's going to be. The last production that I did in Atlanta, we raised $200,000, and we started out with $500. And that's how I operate. I just wow. put together 10 people and say, we are going to do this. I've always been known for that. Um, we're going to do this. If there's anybody in this room who's afraid, please leave now. <laughs> I always say, you, you're excused because I don't operate <laughs> with fear. I don't operate with fear. We, we need X number of dollars. This is how much it's going to cost, and we're going to go get this money, and we're going to do it two methods. We're going to get it from either donations, we're going to get it from corporations, or we're going to get it in kind. Um, with the last production I did, American Black Princess, we raised over $180,000 in kind money. We really did. Um, and that's, been, that's part of what I believe in and what I do. I'm a people person. I believe in people power. I believe that um, every contact you make in the universe is for a reason. And that reason, if you are a change agent in the arts and you really believe and I'm a political writer, which means that most of my work was um, political in nature, being that it was it was steeped in sarcasm, being it was steeped in comedy, it was steeped in music and dance, because I was trained by, quote, you know, a Caucasian university. So I went through the whole four years of Shakespeare and Corsa and the Italian Renaissance and the Spanish Renaissance, and I created the African Renaissance. I said, you know what, um, now that I'm out of this, this school, which was Hunter College, um, now that I'm out of the European um, psyche in terms of what theater is and what art is, I'm going to find out what it is to me. And I took a trip to Africa. I told Dean, um, I got my name in Nigeria because I went so much that they finally said, they want to give me another name. <laughs> I was there. Every time they turned around, I was coming to customs in Nigeria. They said, okay, girl, you got to be, you got to be Yoruba or something or Igbo. So we just going to change your name and we just going to make you a sister. Cause girl, we don't see you a lot up in here. My, my whole point is to study the aesthetics of African art. African music, African dance, which I did. I studied at the University of Lagos, University of Baden. I studied at the University of Ife. I hung out with Fela. You know Fela? I actually hung out with him. Um, I went to his temple, and I sat at his feet with 20 other people and listened to his philosophical language, his music. I hung out with Ashebe. 
I, I needed to find out who I was as friends of a black American. What are my aesthetics? I've already studied Shakespeare. I've already studied Chaucer. I've studied all the Spanish and Italian and French Renaissance writers. What am I going to be? You know, who am I as a writer? Because I am just as radical as Shakespeare. I am just as potent as the French Renaissance writers, but I am a black American writer. So therefore, I have to show my cultural um, significance as a female writer. And I, like I said, all of my plays had a, a theme to them. There was a political overtone. And I think that's why people began to come to them because there was always something going on um, in the underneath the current of the actual play. Um, there was, I did, the first play I did was Land of the Egyptians, Mark, because I didn't know I was a playwright. I didn't go to Hunter College to be a playwright. I went to Hunter College to just be educated. And I danced with Pearl Primus there, and I studied. I didn't know what I wanted to do except be a fabulous person. So I came out, and I was a poet because I was actually hanging out with the last poet. Abby O'Doon was one of my big brothers, and I was going to all their poetry readings. If you know anything about Brooklyn, I hung out at the East when Pharaoh Saunders was there. I was a kid, and I was running around with all these really high-caliber um, African-American, African artists listening to their music and trying to figure out who I am. So I decided that I was a duke. <laughs> That's who I am. And my voice is different than all the other voices, and I wanted to be independent of my own voice. So I yeah, write primarily musicals. You know my work, Mark, because you saw a bunch yeah. of that. Yeah. And she definitely does some great work and talks about some very important issues and things of that nature. And actually, Dean can relate to that whole thing of being around the uh, New York area because he lives in New Jersey, uh, works in the New Jersey area. But his wife is actually from Harlem and has her own uh, yeah. business company that she founded uh, recently and everything where she's doing uh, event management and things of that nature. So she's actually there in your old stumping grounds and has been doing work up there now for – how long has she been doing work in the event management realm about uh five or six years now or a little bit longer than that a little bit longer than that it started maybe about 2006 with a it was an elegant affair with class and then it went from an elegant affair with class to i can't remember the name of the other uh name of the business but then she worked with three Harlem sisters for a while and now it's exclusive events is the name of her um event planning um business we just did a wedding a few months ago and it was pretty nice you know according to the feedback from those who attended which is the most important thing uh, my wife is originally from harlem born in harlem hospital so that's another connection so lie, right so there you know you know so see i, I that's that's well you know, you know mark world. i've already put in a pitch <laughs> to him you know, Mark, I already, when I was speaking to Dean before the show aired, I already asked him about his wife, and so I'm going to use her. We're going to do a, a children's um, Kwanzaa festival in New York in December. We've done this before to Jacob Javis, and that's the first thing I asked. I said, I heard about your wife, and we would like to possibly have her come in with us and do all of the formation of the decorations for the children's village and the 
Um, and he said, okay, we'll talk. That's what I do, Mark. You know me. I will go oh, yeah. up to people I, I don't know and just ask for what I want. I'm not a fearful kid. I never was a no. I was never afraid of people. So I would go ask people what I want. Like Mark, you know, Woody King Jr. is the right. king of black theater in New York. And Woody met me. I was like 22 years old, and I won an Adelco Award for a festival I did at the Apollo Theater. And I said, Woody, I need your help. Please help me, Woody. And Woody looked at me and said, Duque, I'm giving you no help because number one, you don't need none. He was so funny, and I said, yes, I do. He said, Duque, stop it. You got the Apollo Theater. You went there for three months. You produced an entire festival. The only thing I can do for you is be your mentor and your intellectual guide, but, girl, you got this. Um, you, you know what you want, and it made me feel really good because he said, you know what you want. Just do it the way you want to do it. Don't take anybody else's guidelines. Listen to your own creative voice. Listen to your own journey. And my journey, Mark, has been international. I have visited most of the Caribbean and worked with Caribbean artists. I've been all over South America. I've been all out of Africa because I wanted to connect with the African diaspora. And I found it enhanced my writing. Um, ability when I began to study Trinidadian theater and Barbadian theater and Nigerian theater and Ghanaian theater and East African theater with the Maasai. I've been very blessed because I can absorb the energy when I travel and then come back and put it in my work. So that's really who I am. I'm very blessed and grateful. Um, I never lose sight of the fact that I was highly blessed growing up in one of the most difficult communities in New York. Brooklyn was really so rough that they used to chase me home from school. Uh, I was, I had red hair, which is unusual. You know, black people look really different type of ways. So I had red hair and, and it was weird. It was red hair and it was weird looking. And I played the violin Dean. So the neighborhood was like, how you get to be a black girl with red hair playing the violin? <laughs> play the violin. No, really, I'm telling you right. how it was. Walking down the right. street through the project, check this out, with the violin. And they were trying to figure out, that's not acceptable. Yeah. You can't come in this neighborhood <laughs> playing the violin. And No, really, right. and who do you think you are? I said, well, I like the violin, in fact. Um, I kind of liked Beethoven. They thought I was crazy. So every day I had to run home because I had to walk through the park and they would see me and chase me oh, to my, my door because they thought I was crazy. What, what this little black, <laughs> but it made me, <laughs> no, really, it made me very stubborn. I'm very stubborn. It made me stubborn. I was like, I'm going to walk this neighborhood every single day with this violin. In fact, I even took it out more just so I can walk wow. through the neighborhood with the violin because I was like, I know they ain't trying to chase me with my little butt. <laughs> so, that was what this. happened. Yeah, you go get you go get through there no matter what. You are not gonna have them take that violin from you. You're gonna be That's persistent it. with that violin and that red hair and everything. Now we know a right. lot of times when we think about the uh, black theater and everything. Unfortunately, it does sometimes come off as uh, being sometimes. I mean, they're great playwrights like yourself. I definitely consider Mickey a good friend and everything, Mickey Grant and everything. But sometimes it does come mm-hmm. off as being a little bit um, overly masculine and not enough of the ladies being involved. So what is in your mind, was it like being a black female producer playwright 
and director, because I do know that sometimes that can be an issue that maybe it's a little bit overly uh, male-dominated. Well, it was it was rough journey. I'm not going to make it up. Um, it's a boys' club. It was a boys' club in New York. Um, I had a way with um, guys because I have always gotten along really well with men since I was a kid. I had all my friends were male. Um, it was something about my personality that guys liked hanging out with me. So I, I had mostly male friends. So I got to understand the male psyche a great deal. It was a very rough journey. Um, but what I did, I let them adopt me as their little sister. I knew Ed Bullens and all of them. And I just went in as the little sister, which is the way that I did it. In other words, I went and sat at their feet and said, listen, I'm a woman. I know this is a boys club up in here, but I need you to teach me everything you know. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to respectfully listen and take notes. And I used to take a notebook whenever I met Woody for lunch. I did. I brought a notebook. I said, when you talk, I take notes because I want to know how you're doing this so I can do it. And I was always, uh, Mark, very cheerful and happy-go-lucky in theater. I never fought with people. I didn't have no attitude. I always dressed, and this is very important to say this, I dressed like a girl. I was very, very fluffy acting. Um, in other words, I would come in with the fluffy dress on. When I met Douglas Stern Award, I had just gotten back from the Caribbean. I had on a halter top with some bell-bottom pants on and some cowboy boots. And Douglas Stern Award said, girl, you are really sexy. What are you doing running around in my theater looking like this? I said, I come to take over. I need to get my play produced. And I don't give up no sex, so let me just sit over here and let's talk. And he thought it was comical. He said, you are really wild. I said, I'm a girl. And so I approach it like a woman. I'm a girl playwright. I'm not a male playwright. So I bring all the fluff here. I bring the different colors. I bring the excitement as a female um, director, producer, because I see things differently than you do. I see it differently because I see it through another lens. And a lot of the male playwrights begin to basically appreciate my aesthetic, the way I approach them. A lot of them help me. I am a very blessed female writer, and I love my male black writers and producers. They, Woody King always gave me what I want, and I'm not going to even act like he did. Joseph Walker built my set at the Negro Ensemble Company and at the Public Theater. Gilbert Moses directed my play at the Public Theater when he had just left Broadway. Um, Jimmy Justice worked with The Wiz, and he came and did my music. Because I had such a respect for black men and, and respect for black male playwrights, I wasn't bitter about being a girl. I wasn't bitter about the fact that sometimes I had to sit quiet and listen and then raise my hand very politely and say, okay, dude, can I talk now? Um, they respected me for that because I was ladylike. I was ladylike. I said, I, I don't want to be in competition with you. I want to be your sister. I really do. I want to be your friend. I want to be able to learn everything that you can teach me because I'm going to duplicate everything you do, and I'm going to do it the, the girl way. And I did. I did it my way, and fortunately, it worked. It really did. It worked. That's all I could say. I had, I had male mentors at, at CBS um, Television, at PBS. I had Ellis Hayes down at the um, – 
public broadcasting station. I had Vantau Whitfield at NEA in D.C. As a woman playwright, I tell the ladies, you need to get yourself some guys on your board to be your godfathers, to open the doors for you. You need to be a nice, polite lady. You need to not be vindictive. You need to not be mean. You need to not be upset about any of it because it's going to work. You're a girl, and women have a uh, – what is that thing they say about females? We have that mysterious uh, finesse that we could get our way. We get our oh, way. Yeah. You know, you're – you know, Ma, your boy Calvin says that. You're so spoiled that you can you get your way. <laughs> I laugh. I said, you're right. I get my way because I learn how to deal with men in a positive sort of way. I learned how to deal with men because they were controlling the industry in New York, and I had to learn how to get through that industry. Oh, yeah, definitely. You've done a great job of getting through that industry and everything. Tell us a little bit about your background in education as well, because a lot of times we're hearing about how uh, the arts in general and just uh, education is not getting the kind of respect that it needs to get. We've talked a number of times on this show with a lot of different creative people about how um, the arts and helps with the development of creative thinking, but unfortunately a lot of our school systems are not necessarily supporting the arts in their school systems and things of that nature. So tell us a little bit about your involvement with education and how you feel the arts in general are being treated in the school system and also what you would like to see done with the arts in the school system. Okay. That's a beautiful question, Mark. I'm happy. You know, you know, I have a degree in education too. I did a triple major in college because my mother being Southern and my grandmother said they thought theater was a strange profession and my grandmother, who was an evangelist, said it was a demonic profession. So she prayed on me and said, girl, this is some wild stuff. I don't understand why you're doing this. And so what I did was I went into education first. I was a teacher. In other words, most of the women in my family were Southern teachers. So I became an educator. And because there was no arts in the school, Mark, I decided to, to put it in the school. In other words, that's my philosophy. If what you don't find somewhere, you just create it. So I created, from the first year I started teaching, radicalized um, education by adding um, arts, especially theater and dance and music, because my mentors out of Hunter College believed in what they call arts education. And I used to travel around the United States with Dr. Elaine Block and them. They were radical art educators, and they took me everywhere. The little redheaded black girl was roaming the country with me white Jewish people talking about arts education. And so I picked up that that mantra, and every time I taught and every school I was in, I made sure I put it in. By the time I got to my fifth year, I was already the director of theater at a elementary school. Um, after my eighth year, I was director of theater at a middle school, and I began to raise money for the project, because, you know, arts and education and schools didn't have any money. So if you want the arts to exist, you have to raise the money from private institutions. So what I would do is go to banks and say, I am a teacher. I want to bring theater, music, and art into this school. I need $20,000, and I need you to come to my little school and give us the money. And I was really blessed. They they gave me the money. I mean, I, I did major arts projects throughout New York schools. 
I ran um, middle school, five schools, where all of my schools had arts and music and dance. I worked with the last poets. I worked with all the artists in New York, bringing them into the school system so that our children can become well-rounded human beings like the Europeans were and the other kids are. They're, they're well-rounded human beings because of arts education. Then I got really kind of mad. They, your friend did this for me, your friend Calvin Anderson, he brought me a proposal. I had already decided to leave education and become a bohemian artist for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, and your, your intellectual buddy said, Aduke, you know you can't leave. I got a grant for you to look at, and it was a $5 million proposal. And he said, before you step out, you might want to take a look at this, Bill Gates' um, proposal. So what I did, I put together 10 of the brightest African-American, Latino, and Jewish um, educators I could find, and we won, and we won the proposal, and we got the money. And when I got the money, I set up a high school and called it the International Arts Business School, and I had all the politicians and all of the um, community leaders working with me. And, and Vivian Bright, who was my mentor, she was with the Concerned Black Women of Brooklyn. This is a, a female political organization. There are Zeta Phi Betas, and that was my sorority, too. And they stood by me and helped me get that money. And I brought in the Caribbean community with Una Clark from Brooklyn. Anybody know Una is the godmother of the Jamaican Caribbean community. The um, Caribbean American Chamber of Commerce I brought in. I brought in Anna Walker from the Panamanian Association. And we put up a $5 million high school. that We got money from five different corporations. I stayed for one year and a half, and then I left. Why did I leave? Because I felt that my career in education was finished. I put it to the side, and I wanted to go to dealing with theater on a 100% level as opposed to 50-50. You know, Dean, what we had to do, we had to teach during the day from 8 to 3, and then we switched mm-hmm. our theaters at 3.30 and stayed till midnight. You know how we artists work. Yeah, so really? every day I was in work, I had four hours sleep because we had been up all night in production. So I wanted to change wow. the paradigm and do theater primarily and music and art and put the education more to the side, but it's not working because they still got me writing grants and proposals. I'm still, I'm still writing, writing education grants and proposals. <laughs> you get no rest. I, no rest. I'm like, I need a break. That's why I'm in Durham, Raleigh, sitting here cooling out. I need, I need rest. She's got to take, got, got to take a break every once in a while and get away from the, uh, rough life that you have going on doing those 20, 21 hours per day of a 24-hour day. I think that you're trying to make it so that there's 30 hours in a day instead of 24. Exactly, exactly. That's what she's trying to do. So tell us a little bit about the current production about the American Princess um, and also how that relates to what's going on with the royals currently because you actually make a parallel to what uh, uh, Meghan Markle is going through and things of that nature. So I know that that's one of the things that you definitely have talked about in your marketing and everything. So tell us about a little bit about the new production. Well, well, the the American Black Princess is a choreo poem. It's my life story. Um, I lived in um, Germany for a year. I went there and worked with a music group. 
that was opening for Earth, Wind, and Fire, and they hired me as a publisher. So I went over for one year. I was very blessed, and I lived in Germany. And while I was in Europe, I, I published a book, my book of poetry called Reaching Out with Love, which was performed at the Billy Holiday Theater with Grinaldo Frazier for Mom, I Want to Sing, and John Parks. I brought it back because I felt that black women have to tell their story. Um, the story of black American women is very different than the story of black Caribbean women, black African women, black Latino women. It's just a different story. We're in the belly of the beast. So I wanted to tell my story again on stage. And uh, William Calvin Anderson, who is a phenomenal journalist and publicist, said, the Coria poem that you have put on stage is similar to the life journey of Meg Markle because she is creating her own Coria poem. She decided after she stepped into the royal family that she was going to step out and do her own thing. And so the relationship was kind of like my life. I stepped into being born in the inner city of Brooklyn, and I stepped out into what I call the national royalty of the world. So we made a correlation that women in general can create their own destiny and their own royalty by simply making their own choices. And American Black Princess was done in Atlanta, September, and it was sold out. Uh, we had a party, 1,100 people showed up. Mark, it was really deep. Um, 1,100 people came to celebrate my Corey poem. Pedro Harris, who um, has worked with Kenny Leon, directed it. He is a phenomenal director. And Chaka wrote the music. It was mind-blowing because I actually saw myself through when I was five years old all the way up to the present day. It's my whole life story done through music, dance, and poetry. And it blew my mind. I didn't even know I was that wild and crazy. <laughs> I, tried, I was looking at myself saying, a Duke Aribu. It went through my whole life. And it was really fascinating. I think that every woman in the world has a Coria poem. There is, right. um, there is a story. I don't care if you were born in Haiti or in Puerto Rico or in Africa or in Brooklyn. You have a story as a woman because women carry several paths. We're mothers. We're wives. We're artists. We're producers. We, have, we carry a lot of hats. And so as as a result of that, and depending on where God put you in the beginning of your life, he put me in New York in the United States of America. He didn't put me in Africa. He didn't put me in Europe. He didn't put me in the Caribbean. So I had to find my way out of this particular environment the best way I could. And the theme of my poem was a rose emerges from the cement concrete. That's what the piece is about, how you can become a rose even though the concrete cement that you were born in might be not cool or it might be hard. It might be very disturbing to your senses because Brooklyn was very disturbing at some point being in a city, but you have to find your way out and become a rose. And that's what American Black Princess is about. Yeah, man, it sounds like it's going to be a real powerful production. Can't wait to see it uh, produced down here in North Carolina at some point or another and definitely throughout the rest of our listening area because we have listeners in all of the uh, states around the area as well as various countries around the world. So hopefully we'll get it out there to be produced in various places around the world. I do have one question that I was just curious about that you brought up that I had never thought about because I had really not heard that part of your history. But you talked about how your mom 
was not a big fan of you going into the theater and basically wanted to uh, get you out of it because she was a evangelist minister and everything. I've been watching it. I think yeah, I've seen it twice now, and I haven't watched the whole thing, but I've seen it a number of times, uh, bits and pieces, and at one time I'll finally get to see the whole production. But I was wondering, when you said, when you first saw For Colored Girls and that whole scene was going on, did that kind of remind you of your own life? Because as you were describing that, I'm thinking about that scene where the woman is going through her changes and the abuse that she went through, and then her mom also was very much religious. I think that was the role that um, – Right. That Whoopi plays. Well, what what it is is that um, I I had a very sheltered life. My mother was a Southern princess, and I if you look at a lot of my work, I talk about the princess chronicles. I talk about being a princess. My mother was a Southern princess from Savannah, Georgia, for real. When we got into Brooklyn and she realized that the environment was very harsh for her two little daughters, she literally sheltered us from the entire environment. So all I could do is see it out the window. Some of my poetry talks about watching my life through the window, which is why I went to Africa at 20 and decided to live life. Um, I didn't know about a lot of the hardships in New York until I graduated from college because that was the first time I really could live life. Um, one of the things about Color Girls, I did see it. In fact, I saw it with a boyfriend I had who actually walked out the show. <laughs> he really did. The guy walked out. He was like, I, not. I said, well, you know, we got to look at this because this is a voice of one woman. All women have a voice. This was her journey. Intizaki, who I met, and I think she was absolutely brilliant. This was her voice. This is what happened to her and how she perceived life. My journey was totally different. I was sheltered. I was, had red hair. I played the violin. I was very European in my perspective. Then I went to a college where I pledged a black sorority, got my tail handed to me, and went to Africa. So everything, my whole life was different. And since I didn't have bad experiences with men, I did not have negative experiences. My dad was really deep dude and nobody bothered his little daughter. Um, my boyfriends were positive and really wonderful guys. They thought I was a little princess because my dad told me I was a princess. So I didn't, I couldn't relate to what she said, but I could understand it. As a woman, I could see the sensitivity and the beauty of her words, but I didn't have that journey. My journey was more introspective, and I also studied Lawrence Berlinghetti, the poet from San Francisco. I hung out in Europe. I wasn't privy to the same Coriopone experience. And so each woman is different, and I was not upset by her work. I said, right on, girl. If that's the way you feel, I'm like that. You can do anything you want to do on stage with me. I just watch and say, listen, if that's your experience, that's your experience. Who am I to judge your experience? That's very true. You can't judge another person's experience, and uh, their experience no, might be no. vastly different from yours. But one of the other things that you do is one of your plays you talk about, and it's very much a part of the central theme, the whole concept, which is very big now with gentrification and everything, of homelessness. And that might not have been part of your oh, life experience yeah. as well. So how did, you, how did you manage to write a play that's not part of your life experience? Because I don't think that you've ever been homeless. Let me No, let me tell you, a lot of – I've written 12 plays. 
And a lot of them, I have not experienced the um, tragedy and dynamics of what I write about. I always say God comes through me because I was a sheltered little kid sitting in a room at a typewriter. I really was. I told people the truth. I was not roaming the street, you know, homeless. I wasn't roaming the street with no gangs, and I wasn't roaming the street looking at prostitutes. I didn't know none of that because my mother didn't have that. She was Southern. She was going for that stuff. So I, it came through me. I actually knew students who were homeless in college, and I could feel their pain. As a writer and as a steady person, you have to feel the pain of humanity. I'm a humanitarian. If you cannot feel the pain of your fellow man, then to me, I don't know how you could be called yourself a writer because you have to feel the pain of not only your own self, but the pain of other people around you. And I could feel the pain of homelessness. That's why I wrote that play. I had college friends of mine who were homeless because of their decisions when they went to college. Their parents didn't actually dig it, so they were basically homeless. Um, I wrote Babylon, which is about the decadence of the 21st century, which is what Babylon is one of my most decadent plays you will ever see, Mark. If you saw it, you probably would look at me three times and say, okay, Duke, what's up with you? It is so crazy in that play. I got everything going on. It's decadent. It's a punk rock. And George Faison directed it and it's out to lunch. But I saw that. I mean, when I lived in Europe, I saw Babylon. And I saw the play and went back and wrote it because I could feel the Babylonian vibrations in the world, and I wanted to talk about them. All of my plays talk about things that I've seen. Some of them I've experienced, but a lot of it I did not. That's why I could write a homeless play, because I could feel the pain of of people that are homeless. I could feel the humanitarian need for us to do something about it because I'm a humanitarian. I've spent lots of money with causes. I work political. I travel around the world. I believe that we are our brother's keeper. We really are. And that's why most of my work is very political. Yeah, it definitely has a political bent to it and everything. I don't know if you heard me earlier, but I was talking about the art exhibit that's currently going on at Haiti, which talks about um, – kind of the black experience in some of the European countries, and you lived that experience. So what was that like oh, for I you did. when you went to those different countries? Because like I said, I it know the exhibit wild. talks about. I have, I have friends say they don't want to see the photographs from my trip to Europe. Europe is a wild country. Let me tell you what. Um, I, I had a phenomenal time in Europe. I traveled all through Europe. I went to Berlin, um, partied. We partied. Uh, we really, you know, black Americans in Europe are treated really well. I mean, I'm telling you, I just thought I was Princess Megan for real in Europe because they treat us really well in Europe. Why? Because we don't live there. They know we're going home. And plus, we cute. I'm not trying to be fresh. I'm being, you know, black American women are very cute, a lot of us. We just be, we know how to style it. And what would happen when you go to Europe and you walk across the street, most Europeans know you're black Americans. They could spot us. They said we we walked different. We had a swag. We wore our hair different. We had this thing going on. And they treated us really well. I had a good time in France and Spain and London and in Germany. I, I got a book published. I worked for German theater. I produced plays. I had a good time. 
They didn't bother yeah, me. There were Nazis in Germany. I'm not going to lie. I met some Nazis on the train when I would be traveling north, and they would look at me all crazy because they had never seen no black people. But the vast majority of the Europeans embraced me as a black American woman writer. They really did. I was given a lot of opportunities. I lived in a penthouse in Heidelberg. I'm telling a poor little girl from Brooklyn. I had a penthouse in Heidelberg. I worked for a German company there. I worked for the American military as music director for three months, and I quit that and went to work with the Germans. I spoke no German, and I produced special events, and I just tore up Germany in my miniskirt. I'm not going to lie. We partied. The sisters in, the black sisters in Europe are totally phenomenal, and the brothers don't come home. Let me just say that to you. A lot of the black men who I met in Europe never came back. I was like, oh, my God. They didn't come back. They did not come back. And I'm going to be honest. They stayed there because they felt they were treated better. They met some woman from Sweden or wherever. They got married, went about their business. Um, my best girlfriend did that. She married a guy from Finland and never came home. So it was a wonderful experience. I felt like a queen in Europe. Um, I came back very arrogant and egotistical and got my, my butt handed to me at Kennedy Airport because the man asked me why I was in Europe for a year and who did I think I was. This is a customs, and he took my luggage apart, and I had on this fur coat, and he was like, well, who are you anyway? You know, they do crazy in America. Well, who are you, and how come you've been out the country for one year, and why – did you not, did you have a job? They were questioning me. And they had the dogs there too. I, this happened in New York City. Dogs at the airport. They thought I was a drug dealer. They went through my luggage. They went through my clothes. I just sat on the edge of the rail and watched them and said, welcome home to the United States of America. I'm home. That's what I said. I'm home. They, they got me first day in. They already acted crazy because they don't know why a black American woman is hanging out in Europe for a year with passports stamped in every country, and they want to know what I did for a living. Well, that was my experience yeah. in Europe. Yeah, it sounds like a very rich experience that you had there in Europe, and sounds like you enjoyed it and might want to get back there and bring some of your plays and everything. So definitely sounds you had like a real rich experience over there. I was actually thinking about a film that I saw. I think it might have been latter part of last year that was about, um, or earlier part of this year, that was about the how the fashion industry got turned upside down because of uh, African-Americans that came out there. And basically, I think it was in the 70s, they basically brought Motown sound yes. and sax sound and yes. just did a whole yes. show that just, totally changed the fashion industry because they weren't used to that. So they said that it just totally changed what the fashion industry had been in Europe because they were used to the kind of state and proper right. kind of fashion industry. And then these folks came in and were like, nah, we don't want to do that. We're going to give it a whole other soul kind of flavor. That's how, that's and, how we were. We turned, we turned Europe out. Um, I have to shout out to all my brothers and sisters that are black that are in Europe. We turned it out. We are phenomenal. That is part of my, my concept, but we are royal people. We turned Europe out. They were not ready for us. We were so fly, men and women, even the sisters coming out of Africa, Senegal. We were just too cute to be believed. And because Europe, like you said, had a one-track mind on a lot of issues, when the sisters showed up at a at a at a club and she had on 
um, Kenty cloth mixed with chiffon, or I would wear fur shorts, and I had on some leopard boots. See, a lot of these aesthetics are very black and African to us, so they were looking at us like, okay, how did you do this, and can you tell me how to do this? I used to have a lot of German girls come up to my apartment at night to try to talk to me about how to do their hair, and they wanted to know about my clothes. I mean, we were teaching classes, and we were charging them money. We were not playing over there. We had classes. We had master classes and being fabulous, and they would come, and we would say 25 um, German dollars. <laughs> we would say, if you wish, Ain't nothing wrong you with that. The, Get your money. And the black aesthetic, you got to pay for us. No, you got to pay us. We're not playing. Right. We're from Brooklyn. We didn't even think about this. My girlfriend from L.A. was really funny. She'd say, Aduke is a real wild one. She charges big money. She don't even talk to you unless you're paying her because if you want to know the black aesthetic and who we are and how fabulous we are, you got to pay us. And we'll talk. And we, I'm telling you what happened. It was absolutely incredible. Sounds like it was an amazing experience. It sounds like you thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, you know, some people are talking about the fact that we're in the middle of what I guess some people are considering a new Harlem Renaissance or a new Renaissance. We just talked about the fact that the old one is getting ready to celebrate its 100th anniversary and everything. But what do you think about that? Do you think that we're in the middle of a new Renaissance? I, I or we, is that? I think we I think we are. I think there are so many plays being produced now, so many art forms. I was in Barbados in last March with Kafa, with the Barbadian artists from all over the world speaking to Parliament. There are hundreds of thousands of artists in the world that are of color. I mean, Mark, I'm t- this is a renaissance, not only of a, of a post-Harlem renaissance, but it's also a, a international renaissance of art for people of color. We are really gifted um, in the world. I mean, when I went to Barbados for their art fest, I was like stunned at the amount of art coming out of the Caribbean and South America. Um, I'm doing something with Danny Simmons and Russell Simmons in um, April at Danny's um, studio in Philadelphia. I want to give everybody my number so they can get in touch with me to show up. Danny is opening up his art studio. We're going to tear it up. We're doing a post-Harlem Renaissance event with all kinds of poets and artists and writers and, and fashions because we believe we're in another age. You notice that this decade politically is disgusting and um, everybody is acting crazy in Washington with this new regime that's in. But one of the things I've noticed, if you look at the black community of artists, some of us are not paying attention to these mad people. We're saying, okay, we know we're in a historical moment that is really bad, but we are still creating phenomenal work. Like um, the young lady at Notre Dame who's putting out a book called Sisters in the Struggle, um, she has a whole collection of articles about me and about 30 other black post-Renaissance black women writers in theater and in art. I mean, there are works coming out. Um, the sister from the Atlanta Black Theater Festival just went to Ghana, and she is now taking 100 people to Ghana this year in terms of the, the connection between Ghanaian art and theater and a black American art and theater. And I've been in Ghana. It's fabulous. I think we're fabulous. I think we're okay, Mark. I really do. I think that this trip that's going on with them, our, our white brothers and sisters, I don't know what's going on with them. I really don't. I, I'm like looking at this thing. 
don't know what's going on with y'all, but you're acting kind of crazy out here. But the, the essence of the black art form, the filmmakers, the theater plays, the artwork, the music, I think, Dean, that we're just phenomenal. I really do. Yeah, I think we're phenomenal. Yeah, we're definitely doing some phenomenal work and have been doing phenomenal work for a number of years and a number of decades and even, I would argue, centuries. But uh, tell us a little bit about some of the people. You've alluded to some of them, but some of the people that actually influenced you when you were coming up in the art world and everything that you still consider going to as mentors. We know that Woody is still living, so I imagine you still go to Woody, but um, who are some of those people that you definitely still go to? And also share with us a little bit of your connection to some of the people that have passed on, because I do know that you were a big fan of uh, Pearl Freeman as well as a big fan of Bobby um, Chuck Davis yeah, and was. people like that. Yes. Um, do, um, Dr. Pearl Primus was an anthropologist who taught dance at Hunter College. And as you might have known, I was not a dancer. I was a, a poet and a writer. I was a more literary kind of an artist. But Pearl Primus taught me how to dance. And um, she gave me rhythm. And so did Chuck Davis. Chuck Davis used to give classes in Harlem. And I would go across the floor with Chuck until he recognized that I could move a bit, and we became friends. Heavy influence on my cultural aesthetic. Um, Pearl Primus is the one who got my name changed. When I told her that I had been to Nigeria four times, she sent me back with her husband, Percival Boyd, who was from Trinidad. And he took um, a bunch of us into Nigeria again, and that's when I got the name changed. And I kept mine because I thought it was beautiful. A Duke Arimu was lyrical to me. Another person that was very big is in Brooklyn, there's a really heavy female black political caucus um, run by Vivian Bright, who's my godmother, and she put a lot of money and a lot of stuff in my hands so that I could travel with my theater and do projects. Congressman Ed Towns, who just retired out of Congress, he came to every play I ever did in New York, every play. There was also brothers called the Leviticus Group. I don't know if Dean remembers when they had Leviticus and they had the Mel Wolfboat Group and the Parlo Theater Group. All of those guys were my friends. And what they did, because they were not artists, they literally um, sponsored a lot of my projects. I hear Bell. Is that somebody else coming on? We have other people coming on. We'll have to see what they're talking about. But, yeah, don't go anywhere. We're enjoying the conversation. But we have bells. That means other people are calling. Oh, yeah, we got two. We got two at the door. We have Taiki and we have uh, psychic medium Alex Saar. All right. Um, let's get to Taiki first, and then we'll come to the psychic medium as well. But let's get to Taiki first. Okay. Okay. Hold on one second. We will get them in the show very shortly. Straight talk with Dana Mark, y'all. Bass players, best thing you can do for your overall sound. You've got to see this. New Bass Tone Incorporated makes Nightwalker bass guitar tube preamps. This preamp will give your sound such a boost. It's just incredible. Try it today. Try it today now. A great sounding bass guitar will make for a great sounding band. Make your band sound at its best. Best thing you can do for your bass guitar sound. NewBassTone.com. NewBassTone.com. All right, Taiki, welcome to Straight Talk with Dana Mark. You are now on the line. Hello. Hey, Taiki, glad to have you on the line. We've been talking to a Duke, who's a playwright friend of mine who has spent time in um, 
all over the world, actually. She's uh, been born in New York, done plays in Atlanta, North Carolina, and around the world. You are actually from Brazil and actually now live in this area and celebrate the Brazilian culture a lot because you now live here in the the, uh, Triangle area, making Durham your home and everything. But you've actually got a Brazilian festival that's going to be coming up very shortly. So that's part of the reason I wanted you to call was to talk about your experience as being a Brazilian living here in America and letting us folks know about Brazilian music because you're not one of those Brazilian you're not one of those musicians that are from that just know the Brazilian music because you learned about the Brazilian music you were raised in the Brazilian music. Yes, indeed, I was raised um, in the center of the Afro-Brazilian culture, you know, um, the nest of Brazilian music and where everything started, um, including the, the the music style that, you know, um, was the soundtrack for the civil rights movement in Brazil, of course, inspired by the civil rights movement here in the U.S., um, summer reggae. And being a Brazilian, living in the States, and I've been living here for the past seven years, has been a journey of challenges and also um, big victories. You know, I have conquered a lot of respect into into the community, and I'm glad that I was able to build a space where Afro-Brazilians and Brazilians in general could come and find the culture being practiced with respect to the tradition. Definitely. So tell us a little bit about the uh, Brazilian Carnival. You've done this now for a number of years. I think last year, did it happen last year, or was that a year that we had some weather issues and things that it didn't happen? Because I think that it did happen last year, but I can't remember whether it did or did not. So the Brazilian Day Festival was the festival that was canceled last year due to the to the tornadoes. Um, but the Carnival, which we're talking about, that's coming up on February 22nd, um, takes place every February, March, um, all the, you know, religious calendar. Um, it takes place and have been a success for the past seven years. These are, this is the sixth year that I'm doing it myself. I decided to um, take ownership of my culture because the first time that I performed, um, people didn't know what they're doing. Unfortunately, Americans soaked up the event in and gave a different connotation. And I felt disrespected. I felt that things were missing into the um, celebration. So I took the ownership of the event. And since then, I do it every year. And it's, uh, it's a big success. People come and learn about Brazilian culture, not only come to drink and see ladies dancing, but they get educated through a bunch of performances that we bring to the stage. And most of the people that we bring to the stage are local artists who doesn't have much space into the festivals and events that is provided in the Triangle area. And what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions people have about Brazilian life and Brazilian music? Because I know that a lot of times when we think about places that we haven't traveled, I know Brazil, as I've told you before, Kaiki, is on my dream list of places to visit. Um, I think people like you have told me that if I go there, I may never come back because of the whole culture that's there and that I might decide that I don't want to come back and 
who knows, might fall in love with some Brazilian woman or something. But I know that I've been threatened. If I go there, you may not come back. But what do you think are some of the misconceptions people have about Brazil? Well, most of the people, unfortunately, all they know about Brazil is soccer, samba, um, the beauty of the women, and Rio de Janeiro. Uh, these are the things that people associate with the Brazilian culture, and and, and unfortunately, our government, Brazilians as well, they promote those things more than everything else that is there, full and rich of uh, uh, knowledge and uh, ancestry. Uh, some of the misconceptions that you know I try, I struggle with, and I try to bring people to the light to discuss and, 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 and get a better understanding is that uh, Brazilian music uh, is just a mix and fusion of three three races, mainly. The Portuguese, the indigenous population, the Tupi-Guarani population, and the African uh, population. Uh, however, the African roots in the Brazilian culture are the strongest you can you can you can see and experience. Um, the music speaks of that completely. There is no way you can listen to Brazilian music and not wanting to to dance because that goes that changes your flow, your body flow completely. The, the drums change your body flow and brings you to your heart to the beat of the music. This is why people often associate Brazilian music with tribal music, and I've seen that many times. Uh, when you want to portray someone from Brazil, it's portrayed like with drums and, and, and doing silly stuff, you know. Um, and this was one of the things that I struggle a lot to bring people to the light and discuss and get a better understanding. Um, the Brazilian music, yes, indeed, have strong connection with tribal music, but it's not a tribal music style. It has its beauty, it has its own theory, um, and it also has, you know, its own classic point of view. Just as, you know, Western music, Western classical music that people are across the globe uh, appreciate so much and praise so much. Yeah, and a lot of people do that, and they don't necessarily understand the connection of the Brazilian music to some of the other music and everything of that nature. The other person that we've had on this show and everything, Aduke, you'll be able to relate to what she's talked about because she's been talking about how the fact that she's done her plays and she basically does not say no for does not take no for an answer. And I know that you oftentimes don't take no for an answer either and are determined to do these events no matter what folks may tell you because, as she just mentioned earlier, she went out there and got something like $100,000 or some other astronomical amount to do these plays and these Dolphin Productions. And I know that you have a similar kind of mindset where you are going to inform people about this lifestyle no matter uh, what the cost may be, sometimes doing a lot out of your own pocket, but also sometimes trying to find sponsors and things of that nature. So how has that struggle been going in terms of trying to get more people here in our area involved with the arts. And Aduki, if you have any advice to give, Kayaki, we'll gladly take it. Okay. I'll tell him a few things when he finished talking. Um, I have a few things for him to look at. Okay. Oh, that is awesome. Um, Um, One of the things, can he hear me? He needs to get in touch with Steve. 
He needs to get in touch with Steve Allen in Atlanta. Steve Allen is the Olympic artist that has been in Brazil over and over again. He is heavily connected politically. If you call me, I'll get you with Steve. Steve Allen is in Brazil as a painter, and he has major contacts in Brazil and in the United States. So that's a connection that you might want to have with um, Brazil. The other thing is there are a lot of um, political people who have been to Brazil. Um, Out of New York University, Earl Davis takes a tour to Brazil every year. These are the people you need to know because they will also showcase your work and the connection between you and them in the United States will bring you your money you need and the places you need to go. Awesome. I definitely will follow up uh, with you to get um, numbers and name and numbers and any type of contact information so I can get in touch with them. Um, okay. One of the things that I'm trying to do, um, unfortunately, the businesses here, they're not that much inclined to you know, support a cultural a cultural event that is from Latin America, unless it is like uh, something related to Hispanic. Um, populations, you know, Mexico or Honduras or Colombia or Venezuela. Um, when you speak about Brazil, even though it's one of the most uh, popular uh, cultures in Latin America, they are really, really skeptical about putting, you know, finances, financial, financial support into events like this. And our population is just growing so much, and they, they just, they're just not aware. A lot of population is growing so much. There's a lot of people that live in the Triangle area now, and there is a place for them to invest and get their brand or whatever seen by a big crowd is into the, into the, the Latin community, including Brazil. Because one of the things that I've noticed, and we talked about this before, Kaiki, is that sometimes they find one group, and whenever they find that one group, whether it's uh, – somebody like um, Ricardo or somebody like that, they'll stick to that one group and they won't explore the expanse of what Latin America represents. Because Latin America is not just one country. It's a variety of countries. I mean, it's everything from Brazil to Honduras to Chile to Mexico to Peru to um, Paraguay. So it's a variety of countries. But oftentimes it seems like a lot of our leaders, in terms of the artistic leadership, try to stick with just what they consider safe which is, might be more of like uh, the traditional kind of sounds and everything. Yeah. That is a, the, the big misconception that everything that um, after Miami, everything sounds the same for, for, for them. So they put it all in one big box. It's one of the things that I learned here uh, in the U.S. is that you cannot allow the, the system to – add you to one box. Even though you are part of a certain population, you're still different from the, the, the remaining uh, uh, cultures. And this is what I try to uh, bring people to, to, to discuss. It's like, why am I just being, why am I just Latino? Why, I'm, why is not here like Afro-Latino? Because, you know, there's black people in Latin America, lots of black people in Latin America. More than the here in the U.S., so I cannot be Afro-Latino. And was one of the struggles in everywhere that I went to fill up this document, you 
know, they just have a, you are either or Hispanic, Latino, or you are black or white. And that is not the thing. Um, fighting to, to not be categorized by a big block, a big chunk of demographics is also like a struggle that, that us Latinos um, suffer a lot. Yeah, definitely. Because I imagine that, um, and I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl, but I imagine that you probably even felt that way with the halftime show because everybody celebrated the fact that it was these two women. But best I can tell, it was two women pretty much from similar cultures. I mean, they did bring in the Colombian, I think he was Colombian, the Colombian rapper, but a lot of it was Puerto Rican-based. It wasn't a lot of some of the other cultures that were involved. And I know that there were probably some people in the Latin American community that would have liked to have seen a, if it was going to be a Latin American celebration at the Super Bowl, they probably would have liked to have seen a wider celebration. Yeah, um, that's, uh, that celebration of the Super Bowl was epic. It was beautiful. Um, it does represent a lot of the, the, the Latinx community. Um, me as Brazilian, I felt represented. Of course, if I could select something else, I would. We have you know, some other amazing artists, but I understand that it needs to please... Um, you know, the, the the majority of the people who watch the NFL and they are they are not much Latinos. They are more uh, you know, white and black folks that, you know, enjoy um, Super Bowl. So their T V wouldn't be turned off just because of their position that I would like to see. But definitely that performance is definitely uh, put a open eyes of a lot of people to what is out there that we appreciate, but we just don't know or don't care to search and look for. And that is one of the things that uh, um, here, like, you know, with my, my business now, I'm trying to do, create an option for people to go out and, and get educated, connect, network, and have fun. Uh, with oh, my yeah. monthly event is, like, one of the things that I do to provide a space for Latinos to come together, especially with Brazilians to come together and at work, and people who love Brazilian culture but doesn't have the funds to go to Brazil or is just disconnected from the Brazilian culture or haven't been to Brazil once but is disconnected today, to have a space where they can go and speak the language, listen to the music, eat the food, try the drinks, and be connected to the culture like in an authentic way. Yep, definitely. And just out of curiosity, what is uh, your own personal favorite among those Brazilian drinks and those Brazilian foods? Because y'all do have a rich variety of foods and flavors, and I imagine that your favorite might not be the favorite of somebody else from Brazil. But what is Kaiki's personal favorite? Personal uh, I'm sorry, it cut a little bit. Personal favorite of what? But in terms of the food and the drinks that come from your rich country of Brazil. Oh, well, the, the, so that is a food called cozido, which is a big stew uh, with multiple types of meat and vegetables. These are This is my favorite, favorite food. It's really hard to do it here because you don't have all the, the, the vegetables that we use in Brazil. We, we grow some vegetables that that is nowhere else in the, in the planet. Uh, but this is my number one. Also, that is a, a bean is to call feijoada, which also carries a lot of meat 
and beans, black beans or pinto beans, and it's one of the, the trademark of Brazilian um, culinary. Um, and this is like this is a food that you know was the delivery food. Is the leftovers of whatever the cow was um, was left behind. Um, the African people soak that, add beans, add spices, and create a magnificent food that that is no person that can go experiment, try, and not fall in love with it. Wow. Sounds like a delicious meal. I might have to try that sometime myself. Unfortunately, I don't think – are there any um, current Brazilian restaurants in the Durham area that are actually good and authentic Brazilian food in, anywhere in the Triangle? Or is, am I hoping beyond hope that we have that? Well, that, there are the, the Brazilian steak houses, but – they modify so much of the food that it doesn't doesn't taste like Brazilian food. Um, it's one of my my dreams actually to open up Afro Brazilian cuisine and provide these other spices and tastes of Brazil that people are not aware of. Um, but the only thing you can find around here is Brazilian steakhouse. And that would not be the same thing, unfortunately. I agree that sometimes those restaurants that are those kind of steakhouse restaurants are not the same that you would usually want and everything. So uh, talk a little bit about the Brazilian music and what, in your mind, people's how you would describe Brazilian music. You did a little bit, but if you would get into a little bit further explanation as to what the history of Brazilian music is and how that is, how it was formed. So... As I, as I mentioned before, it's a big fusion of uh, Portuguese, indigenous, and African music. Um, but the the big chunk of the, the Brazilian culture, the like the big the groove, lives in the African uh, uh, rhythm. Uh, over here in America, uh, drumming was not um, allowed, or oh, there was a day. A week that you could go to the Congo uh, Congo Street and perform, you know, drums and 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 stuff like that. I think in New Orleans, um, in Brazil, drumming was allowed. Um, the religion was not, but we found ways to disguise the the Afri- uh, African roots of our religion and mix with the Catholicism. Um, and that was the start of everything. Since we could not praise to to the gods and goddess with drums, we create music that will resemble the the spiritual rituals, and we will dance to it and just name something different. And that was how samba came to life. Samba is completely a religious. It was a religious rhythm. It has roots in the religious rhythm of Yosa, Oya, and it was just modified to disguise the dance that people want to manifest for the for the god goddess. Um, that was a big, big, big start. Um, after that, um, Portuguese, of course, there was a lot of Portuguese people. Musicians who appreciated the richness of the Brazilian, the, Afro, the, the African rhythm. So they start bringing the instruments, the European instruments, 
and, and succulate with African drums. And that is how Samba started to have melodic uh, shape uh, and harmonic shape as well. Um, and from Samba, I can assure you, from Samba um, came Bossa Nova, came all the other rhythms that is performed in Brazil right now, uh, including Maracatu, um, there's some other Tentonesio and Coho that is also come from a Af- African tradition in music. Yep, definitely, and you definitely can hear that African tradition in the music whenever you have played with your group and everything, because you've had a couple of different groups here in the Durham area and have your current group and everything. So tell folks about the event that's monthly, where it's held at, and uh, what days it's held on, and also a little bit about the carnival and the day that it will be taking place. I think it's this weekend, but if you'll give people a little bit of the details as to the monthly one as well as the big one that will be coming up later on. Um, so the carnival in Brazil starts uh, Wednesday, uh, no Thursday, two weeks, and we always I always host the carnival event here the same day the carnival in Brazil, so we can have the feeling of being Brazil, being part of the celebration because carnival is a big celebration uh, that brings communities together. Uh, the event will happen on the 22nd of February at Rhythms Live Musical Hall, um, right next door to Scrap Exchange. Um, it starts at 8 p.m. We will have this year five performances. Um, inside of the, the, the venue, we'll have dance classes so we can introduce the people, you know, dance movements, and everybody can get, you know, ready to to enjoy the night and feel comfortable moving along with other Brazilians. Um, we will have Oshenchi performing drumming outside and doing a small parade in front of the space. Um, I will have my band performing inside. I have Samba Jovem, which is a, a Brazilian samba band that is like the only Brazilian samba band in in, in Southeast. Uh, samba Jovem performing with us. We have the ladies from uh, North Carolina Brazilian Arts Project uh, perform with us, um, and a DJ from Sao Paulo coming to to perform with us as well. And one thing that I like to to just bring attention to everybody listening, um, we try to make this event as much, as ma- as many like bring this this event as many people that respect the roots of Brazilian culture. Right now, the dancers of uh, the dancers that will perform with us, they are in Brazil getting trained by masters of dance in Rio de Janeiro and Bahia. They have been there since December to get training. And I really appreciate when I see people getting out of the comfort zone and going to Brazil to learn the roots the culture and bring back something that is more close to the traditional way of doing it. So this is one of the things that I'm really happy and proud of is to really have a space where people can experience the real, the real uh, uh, carnival, how we do things in Brazil. This is exactly how you're going to experience February 22nd at Rhythm Live. Uh, Sounds great. 
the monthly event takes place uh, at the West End Wine Bar. Uh, it is more, it's more like a, a, a social gathering, gathering uh, in which we have food being served, drink, special drinks being made, uh, inspired by the Brazilian flavors, and live music. Uh, and then it happens every single Saturday of the month, starting in March. So we go from March all the way to October. All the way to October, uh, providing this event that is a space for people to network and get close to the Brazilian culture. Sounds wonderful. It sounds like it's a weekly event, so folks can definitely make it. I did not make it last year to any of them because of my own crazy schedule, but I have pledged to you this time that I'm actually going to make it to a few of them over there at the West End Wine Bar so I can enjoy some of that activity and enjoy some of that fine music and that fine culture that you definitely are a proponent of and a big supporter of. And I see um, Kaiki. Uh, Dean, I see Kaiki every Sunday because Kaiki, in addition to doing a variety of things, he is also a sound man. So he does the sound for Christ Central Church, which is the church that meets out of the Haytai, one of the two churches now that meets out of Haytai every Sunday. And he handles a lot of the uh, sound work with the gospel group that performs there on a regular basis. And um, if you actually come to a Sunday service, he may, on occasion, the church will let him slip in and do a little bit of drumming in the middle of their band that performs. So I'm always glad when I see that because that's like a special treat when he gets away from the soundboard and actually gives us a little bit of his drumming. Yes, it's always a pleasure when this, when I have the chance to add uh, you know, a little bit of my roots into into the, the music of the Saint Thomas Barrel. Uh, they have a, definitely like a great great gospel band, and every time they invite me to play, I feel so happy to be able to you know play for God and God and Goddess. So I feel I feel that what they do is really like bringing in. Diversity into into the the celebration. Definitely, and that's something that I've always wondered about. And because um, I've never understood, were you raised in the? Because I know that there's variety of religions there. Were you raised in the Christian spirit, or were you raised in more of the traditional spirits, or do you consider yourself like more of a just a spiritual person or religious person? I've never asked you that, Kiki. So I'm asking you now. So no problem. So. I was raised, so I was baptized as Catholic, and I went to church a lot, uh, Catholic church, uh, and because the, the Afro, the African, uh, you know, Candomblé, which is the African uh, tradition, religion in Brazil, is mixed with uh, Catholicism a lot, I kind of jumped back and forth from one to the other, but I grew up and I grew up experiencing every single piece of um, spiritual connection that I had the chance to. Uh, my mom made sure that I was exposed to all variety of religions. And today I consider myself to be a spiritual person. I don't follow one single doctrine. I think that is um, if that is good in everything, and if, it's, if God is in every space, I I cannot. Don't sit quiet in one space only. I need to experience God in many ways. Doesn't matter if it's another language, doesn't matter if it's in another doctrine um, um, or race. I want to experience that because I want to be connected to God and Goddess uh, in many ways. So I'm more a spiritual person today. 
Yep, I agree with you. That's kind of my philosophy as well, considering myself more spiritual than a religious person. So I can definitely agree with you on that and everything. And you've actually taught me a lot about uh, the culture of Brazil. And then I want to get my other guests on as well uh, before we wrap up the show and everything. So um, I do want to give you time to answer this. But you've actually taught me a whole lot about the um, politics of Brazil as well. Because, you know, we talk about how mad the politics is around here in the United States. (laughs) And you've told me a couple of times, that Brazilian politics might make American politics look mild. Well, yeah, um, definitely the politics today. I'm not saying that it's good in America, but in comparison to what we experience in Brazil is horrific. And right, what y'all dealing here is like much easier to solve than what is happening in Brazil. We just came through. We just went through a, a, a school. Um, the president that was elected with 54 million votes was impeached because she she said that the banks and big investors in Brazil should take care should take you know care of the low-income community, and this was the party did for many years because of bad connections, allegations they made. Um, she got herself into trouble and she was pushed out of the house. And now we have a misogynic, misogynist uh, president who hates uh, poor people, specifically poor people, specifically black folks. He condemns um, um, homosexuality. Really public, he says that homosexuality is something that should be banned, and if you can't kill homosexuals, you should. It's one of his speech, hate speech that he 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 goes around in public TV and says to people. Uh, but I just fear, I just fear for the the future of our our nation. Um, and when I say nation, I say the human human nation everywhere because right now we are on a wave of the darkness. That is, there are many countries and, 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 and people suffering with bad leadership. I just hope we can rise up, stand up together, and fight against uh, this bad energy and this bad guys that is definitely uh, trying to destroy humanity. Yeah, definitely. I can agree with you on that. Um, on, on that note, I do want to get to the other guests and everything. But Kaiki, before I get to the other guests, could you tell us how uh, folks can reach you? Oh yeah, you can find me on social media. You just need to look for Kaiki Vidal, which is spelled C A I Q U E V I D A L. You can find me on any social media you use: Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Also, you can visit my website, kaikibidao.com, and you can have a chat with me anytime you want. I'm very available, very open to talk about my culture and share a little bit more of my culture uh, because what brought me here is what made me the person that I am, the citizen that I am, and I'm very thankful for it. And all I want to do is present to you well and, and share with more people. Sounds good, and definitely want to um, keep you on the line and everything. Um, okay, before I get to the um, person that's uh, talking, uh, 
uh, the medium that we're going to have on as well. Could you tell folks how they can reach you? Because we do want to continue the conversation. We still got about 25 more minutes to go. But uh, uh, I do. Could you tell folks uh, real quickly a website that they can reach you at? Okay, um, you can reach me on social media. My name is spelled A D U K E A R E M U. You could also um, call me at 678-739-6674, text me. You can go to my website and send a comment at com. I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. Or Mark, they could um, simply call you and you will transfer the information over to me because we've been friends for over 25 years. We can just, yes, we have um, been friends for a number yep. of years, no doubt, and I can definitely make that connection to those folks and everything. I do you want both of you to stay on the line? And, uh, Gene, uh, can you see if Alex Sar is still on the line? Sure can. we get it in in just one second. Are you enjoying the smoothest conversation in podcasting? Straight talk with Dean and Mark. Hi, this is DJ Smooth Jazz, syndicated radio host and co-owner of Portfolio Group, LLC your smooth jazz lifestyle and entertainment group with offices in Durham, North Carolina. Portfolio Group LLC specializes in promoting the lifestyle of smooth jazz listeners with the promotion of smooth jazz events and the distribution of African-American-owned wines. For more information, PortfolioGroupLLC.com or you can swing by my secondary site, DJSmoothJazz.com. Now back to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. And we're back. Alex Saar, welcome to Straight Talk with Dana Mark. You are now on the line. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on this evening. I appreciate having you on, Alex. Um, you heard uh, different people talking. We've been talking about the arts. You heard uh, actually um, Kaiki talking about the spiritual kind of connection that he has with his music out of Brazil and how he considers himself spiritual. And definitely Aduki has talked a little bit about her history and definitely being in tune with her own spirituality and things of that nature. And you are actually a psychic and a medium. So for those that don't know what is a psychic and a medium, how would you define what is a psychic and a medium? <laughs> Yes, so a psychic is actually someone who, they, they perceive energy, and that could be past, current, and future information. And not only that, um, psychics are actually able to read auras, and a medium is someone who actually receives energy from your loved ones in the spirit. So that's a good question, because that's, that's something that, um, you know, can confuse a lot of people. So, yeah, there's definitely a good difference right there. And how do you feel spirits communicate with people? I know that sometimes I actually work in a historical building. It's the Haytai Heritage Center, and we, among us, all that work there, and even people that have visited, like Aduke and her friend Calvin, and I would even argue Kaiki, sometimes feel that they can feel some of the spirits of past people that have lived there as well as some people because the building is well over 100 years old. So sometimes people even feel that they feel spirits from decades ago in the building and everything. So how do you feel that spirits communicate with people? I know that we've heard mysterious knocks on the door, heard steps and other things that sometimes would just frighten people, but just about everybody that's worked in that building, because like I said, it is an older building, has talked about the fact that they have heard things that they cannot explain. Yeah, well, one of the biggest things that spirit, spirit really likes to make you feel their presence. 
So that explains, you know, when you walk into a building and, and you can feel that sometimes you get those goosebumps, you feel like a slight angle. And not only that, spirits really like to leave tangible evidence. They, they really like, they really want to make sure that you know that they're there. So sometimes they can communicate through technology. Sometimes a song will come on the radio that really resonates with maybe one of your loved ones that have passed. Um, you know, sometimes they can even mess with a, you know, a TV around you. But a lot of the times, a lot of people will find tangible items that really resonate with them and their loved ones. And a lot of people that are in tune with their senses and have a higher vibration, um, you can hear, see, and feel. Um, sometimes you can see spirits. Sometimes you can, you know, hear and feel them. Everyone's really different in how they can really um, be aware of how they leave those signs for you. Yep, and uh, Kaiki, if you are you still on the line there? And if so, I've mentioned it a couple times. I know you come from Brazil, so I've known other people in this building have, I meaning the Haytown building, have felt that they felt some spirits or some connections with other folks that have passed on. Have you ever felt that yourself? If you're still on the line, Kaiki, Kaiki might have left the line, but that's all right. We'll come back to that later. Uh, but um, Alex, um, why do you think that spirits speak through mediums? Well, well, here's the thing. Mediums, and you know, speaking for myself, also, we have years of you know crafting our skill, and you know, we're able to really raise our vibration. And, and spirit lowers theirs, and that's how we really make that connect. And, and spirit, they're really attracted to those high vibrations, and they're able. They know if you're able to communicate with them, and they know if you're not. So that's why mediums, you know, they tend to come to mediums. And, you know, what I like to tell people is that we're the messengers. You know, we're, we're the messengers. We're those clear vessels that spirit, they just know, um, they know that we can really deliver those messages for other people. And so, so anybody wants to talk to spirits. Now, some people would not want to talk to spirits because I know a lot of times <laughs> folks, when they think of spirits, they think of ghosts and they think of other things. And a lot of times folks are like, they've gone to the other side. I don't want to talk to them. But then you do have others that, <laughs> feel that they've lost communications with their loved ones and they might want to find a reason to communicate with them. And of course, there's the stereotypical things that we've all seen in the great movies and everything about communicating with the Ouija boards and things of that nature. But it sounds like you're doing a more scientific version than what is the stereotypical Hollywood version. Right. And, and, and you know, that's, that's such a great point. That's such a great point to bring up. And, and really what it comes down to is just developing um, our own awareness and allowing ourselves to, to really be open to receiving. Because here's the thing, you know, a lot of my clients that I talk to on a daily basis, a, a lot of them, you know, we, they talk to their loved ones pretty frequently. And when they do, there's actually an instantaneous connection. And what I tell people, it's comparable to like a phone call to heaven. When you think about your loved ones and when you talk to them, you know, they're able to connect to you and they want you to be able to receive those messages from them. So it's really about, you know, you know, having your own daily practice or even, you know, two times a week, you know, even meditating. A lot of my clients will meditate and they'll really, they'll really learn to open up and, and tap into their own psychic senses because each and every one of us are capable of receiving messages from our loved ones. And it's not just mediums, and that's what I try to tell a lot of people. Each and every one of us are, are really capable of doing that on their own. Because one of the things that I wonder about, and I was wondering what your thoughts are, but are on this are, is that a lot of times it seems to me that if we're honest with ourselves, that when we look at dreams, and I know this definitely is a philosophy of a lot of Eastern religions and Eastern philosophies, but when we look at our dreams, a lot of times they will communicate a message to us. 
Now, sometimes some people think that those dreams are being communicated by folks that have passed on, whether that's folks that they want to call ancestors or that that's folks that they want to call, you know, just uh, ghosts or whatever. But definitely people that have gone past on from this life to the next to the next plane and everything. A lot of times it feels like they might be communicating through our dreams and everything. Is that something that you believe is happening? Because I know I have had a couple of good friends that definitely practice more what would be considered Eastern kind of religions, whether that's Yoruba, whether that's Native American, whether that's whatever. And that's kind of their philosophy is that a lot of times they are being communicated with by the uh, the dreams that they're having. And maybe it might not be a direct tap on the shoulder, but it might be a message that they're getting. But I've also had people tell me that they feel that they're getting messages from nature, that sometimes the ancestors may be communicating to them through things that are happening in nature. It may be something as simple as observing what the birds are doing and using that to figure out what they're going to do weather-wise. Yes, I absolutely. That, those are two really, really great points. And I'll start off with, with the dreams. Dreams, um, it's actually one of the easier ways for spirits to communicate with us. And a really big way to know if it is your loved one communicating with you is when you wake up and you feel a sense of ease and you feel like you're receiving um, a, a form of guidance. And an interesting point, too, for, for those of you guys that, you know, want to be more aware of when your loved ones are communicating with you in your dreams, because it does happen pretty frequently. I, I tend, I, I've had quite a few experiences with my own loved ones, but sometimes you have certain meeting points in your dreams. If you're, able, if, if you're someone that's more of a visual person, you'll recognize that there's familiar meeting spots with your loved ones, and on a sub, subconscious level, there's actually an initial agreement between the both of you where you guys have an initial meeting spot. So you're able to really recognize them when they come through. And, and when it comes to nature, that's, that's a really, really good, that's a really good point. Also, um, a lot of times animals will connect with us as, you know, a guide um, and, and through our loved ones. And sometimes they can come through in the form of birds or a lot of people. Um, Cardinals is a pretty big symbolic Thing that a lot of my clients experience with their loved ones, and um, a lot of people can feel a sense of guidance when they do when they do walk walk out in nature and really you know expand your awareness and receive signs that way. So those those are two really great points about that also. And the other thing that I was just curious about because I know that this has happened to friends of mine, and I guess it's happened with me on occasion and everything, is do you sometimes think that sometimes spirits or other ancestors, whatever terminology we want to use for this that they might communicate through actual living people. Because I know that sometimes you'll have a friend or a stranger make a comment, and they know nothing about you, you know nothing about them. They'll make a comment, and if you even, like, press them on why they made the comment, they oftentimes can't explain it. So it's almost as if maybe the ancestors or whatever, the ghost or whatever, are giving them a cue to say something to you. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's so it's, it's so divinely sent to us, too, you know, when, when we're in that moment. And, it, and I'm sure that you found, you know, if you've had those experiences yourself, that it's absolutely what you needed at that time, or it's that missing puzzle piece. And it's one of the most beautiful signs, and one of my, actually one of my favorite signs when I'm able to recognize that, you know, spirit or one of our guides are speaking through another person. 
Yeah, because I know that it does seem to happen, and it happens sometimes in the most unusual places. I mean, I'm a mass transit person, so I would even argue that it's happened on the bus and things of that nature where, you know, and like I said, I've never pressed the issue, but I'm sure that if I asked them why they made that comment or why they made that comment to another person, because sometimes you can also observe it happening to somebody else. And they, I'm sure that if I asked them why they made that comment, they might not even have an actual explanation for why that was actually happening in that particular moment in that particular time. Yes, it's it's absolutely. I I love it, and I love when you start to get into the practice of you know maybe asking for signs from from your you know from your guides or from your loved ones. You'll find that happening more frequently to you, and it's really interesting when I see that happening to others as well. And I was just wondering. I mean, I know definitely with astrology, and sometimes well, this is going to be some of a controversial question, probably. But it seems to me that a lot of times when we are communicating and praying to God or whatever our um, God spirit is, whether that's, you know, God himself, whether that's Muhammad, whether that's Jesus, and we're going to go the prophet route or whatever, that it seems sometimes that the prayers wind up being twofold, that we wind up praying definitely to the higher power, but we also sometimes in the midst of that prayer also might throw in a word of a question or wanting something from ancestors that have passed on, whether that's parents, if you lost your parents, I'm fortunate that I have both of mine, or grandparents or great aunts or whatever, or even friends, that you may, in the mix of prayer, also ask for guidance from people that we are hoping have made it the journey into that next plane in the positive sense. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And what, what, what I get with that is I like to, I like to separate I like to separate those prayers like what I when I'm asking for guidance from my loved ones I, I like to really start off with having like a separate prayer of of gratitude and when it, when it comes to really asking your loved when it comes to really asking your loved ones for for some guidance or messages that's something kind of I kind of like to do separate um does, does that make sense so when I say that it's something I feel like it might I, I feel like it's something that would be better off when it you know made separate no, and that makes a lot of sense, and I, I can understand where that would make the more logical sense that you would pray the, you know, regular prayers that most people would do in church or at the, if going to bed and things of that nature, and then pray at a separate time when you're asking for guidance from the ancestors and things of that nature. So, no, that makes a lot of sense in that regard and everything. And I was wondering, do you think that this particular time, because we are in the middle of Valentine's Day, is in four days, do you think that this is a time when people are more in tune to trying to communicate with some of their loved ones, because a lot of a lot of times these are loved ones that have passed on, and I know I've even had friends that have you know had loved ones that have passed on, and they might even want to get guidance as to what the next step should be in their own social life from their loved ones that have passed on. Because I know that I've had some friends that have you know they might have passed on, had one of the spouses pass on, and they might want to you know even get guidance in the, the love category from that person. You know they they may be back in the dating world and want to know if this person acceptable to the past love to, to their past mate and everything yes especially around the holidays and around valentine's day you know we're more apt to receiving more of a connection from a loved ones because we're, we're thinking about them more frequently you know the holidays especially when you have lost some loved ones you know that that's a time where we tend to think about them even more and then there's that instantaneous connection like i said with the phone call to heaven where they're even more connected and even more in tune with us and you know they know that we want those signs in in guidance and you know one thing that's really interesting is if you really 
you know, just a tip for you guys, you know, especially around Valentine's Day, if you really get in this space um, and thinking about your loved ones, if you really sit with some pen and paper and ask your loved ones, you know, about giving you some insight on guidance. It's, it's very beautiful how there's sometimes there's just a flow. And you don't even know where it comes from, but it's a flow, and it comes in the form of inspired action where there's this information that feels good. But they do help us with that. And I feel like especially around the holidays where we're more in tune with them, we're absolutely able to really tap into our senses even more. Yeah, definitely. I can see where that would be the case. Um, I know that I've had this conversation with a couple of friends of mine, and we kind of go back and forth on this. And I'm just wondering your perspective as a medium and a psychic, which is the whole concept of soulmates. Some people think that you are only going to get one soulmate in your life, and you're fortunate if you find that soulmate, if that's what you hope to have. But then I know other people, and I think I might be one of those, that think that you can actually have multiple soulmates that might be there for different purposes. Like they might have a soulmate that is your soulmate that is supposed to be the person that you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with and maybe even go into eternity with and everything, that kind of like – um, fairy tale kind of love that people are always looking for, but then you have like the soulmate that might be there to inform you or help you in a situation or help you whether it's a business situation, a personal situation, or a life situation. And even in the matter of love, it seems to be that sometimes people have more than one love, and maybe it's the different kinds of love. So, as a psychic and a medium, do you think that it's possible to have more than one soulmate? Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, that, this is one of my favorite talk, topics to talk about, actually. It, you know, spiritual journey or not, we all have soulmates, and they all come into our life at certain, you know, certain points. And I, I absolutely agree when there's times in our lives where a soulmate will come in, and we think it may be our lifetime soulmate. And I believe we all do have one lifetime soulmate. Um, sometimes we don't always meet them in this lifetime, and that's okay. Sometimes we're meant to meet those ones that will really um, help us evolve and, and get past those certain issues, you know, certain internal issues to, to get to the next level. And it's really interesting when you look back and you evaluate those people that had a major impact on your life. And those are usually the people that are soulmates that really helped you get to where you are at this, at this certain point. And sometimes the soulmates are not always pretty, because I know there's been a couple of people that definitely at the times we were together, we felt like we were soulmates, and it might have, you know, to, be, to use a analogy, it may have exploded or whatever happened, and you learned, like, some real rough lessons, as either either about yourself or about them or about both. So I don't know that all the time that soulmates – I know the concept is that soulmates are always going to be pretty and fine and the you know the nice ribbon wrapped in a bow and everything, but it seems to me that sometimes the soulmates explode on you as well. Yeah, it's so true. A lot of people, in my experience, because I am um, I, I am um, a life coach as well. Um, a lot of a lot of soulmates have a hard time even staying together because a lot of stuff does blow up on both ends. And there's and I'm sure you've seen this too on your end. There's a lot of difficult circumstances around relationships that almost seems like it's preventing you guys from staying together, but in reality it's just like a test from the universe to see, hey, can you get through these issues? Can they get through these issues? Um, it's really a choice um, to get through that mess to see if you guys can stay together. In my experience, a lot of, you know, some people can. I'm not saying it's impossible, but in my experience, I've seen there's been a lot of difficulties with both parties um, wanting to get through that to stay together. And uh, what are the special ways do you think there are that people can communicate with their loved ones and things of that nature? 
Ooh, well, I, I feel one of the best one one of the best ways, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a medium, is to find a to find a credible credible medium. I mean, I offer um, personal private sessions as well, and you can have um, you know a, a session that way and connect with them. Or if it's something that you really want to do yourself, you, you can really get the the tools to really develop your awareness and tap into your senses and have that pre- practice um, to do that. But I mean, it can be as simple as just asking a few questions, asking them, you know, giving them a time frame. I always say three days. You know, give, give, me, give me a sign that I can really be aware of in the next three days. It could be tangible. It could be a dream. You know, they want to do that for you. Okay? Sometimes um, they're not always ready. Sometimes they're not always fully transitioned. But it's definitely worth a try. And it's, it's really beautiful when you're able to, to start a connection and maintain your own relationship with your loved ones in spirit. So definitely asking is, is one of the best ways to start with that. And uh, once again, I might be getting myself in trouble with both your publicists as well as uh, just the questions that I ask you everything. But you are a celebrity medium and a psychic and everything. And I know that for a fact that a lot of celebrities, particularly African-American celebrities, are also very spiritual. So when people come to you as asking for your celebrity medium work and they also have a spiritual tie, and sometimes there's that con- concept that the two don't necessarily blend. Because some people think that mediums are kind of opposite of what religion should be. And I don't necessarily believe that, but I know that that's out there as a thought pattern. So uh, how do you answer that when people give you that kind of concept of mediums and religions can't blend at all? What I like to say is that, you know, for example, like say I, I'm very, I'm a very spiritual person, and I believe that there, you know, there's one source, and everyone likes to have, you know, something tangible for that, you know, which is different religions. But I just, I just like to keep that separate when, when I do communicate with people, and and and, and really show them that it really has nothing to do with, you know, connecting with your loved ones in spirit. Because, um, you know, some people are kind of afraid, especially with certain religions, and I completely respect that, um, that it, you know, can, can bring the, the devil or just some, some evil things. But it's really all in the light. I, I see it in the light. I see it in, you know, the work of God. That That's how I really see it. Um, so I always, you know, people will see that from themselves. I, I, I try not to force that on people. I try to let them experience that for themselves, so that, you know, if they're really open to experiencing that. Yeah, and that seems like the best way to handle that and everything. If you can, and I mean, if you can't, that's cool too, but you do advertise yourself as a celebrity medium. Who are some of the celebrities that you've actually worked with? So we haven't worked with two. I haven't worked with any celebrities, but you know what has given me that status per se is I have done quite a few um, medium interviews, and I and I do travel in, internationally, and that's something that I've become really renowned for, and it's something that I continue on with um, dedicating myself to. I really love giving exposure to this work and, and get delivering a perspective changing experience. So that's something that I look forward to um, continue on with doing. It sounds like it's some great work. Um, I'm going to bring Dean on my co-host as we get ready to wrap up the show and everything. But uh, one thing that I think that we would both agree with is that if you can find any way possible to um, at any point in your life, find some way to get in touch with the people over there on both sides 
of the White House so that they can connect with their ancestors and realize that what's going on is kind of crazy, we would greatly appreciate it because this whole thing is becoming like a madhouse, as Kaiki alluded to earlier around the world, because he was actually talking about the negative energy in both his country of Brazil, the negative energy in the U.S., and just the negative energy around the world because he's very much into his Brazilian music, and that's kind of what he was talking about And before we brought you on and everything. So, like I said, if we can find some way that you can get to communicate with these people, so I'm, I'm sure they've got some ancestors that can tell them the truth or we'll sit them down and tell them the honest answers. <laughs> yes. I would absolutely, I wish I, I would absolutely love to help them with that. I think they're definitely in need of that right now. I absolutely agree with you. Yes, they definitely need some help in that regard. It definitely seems like they need some communication from their ancestors. Uh, Dean, are you still with me? You know, I'm still here, brother. I appreciate it, Dean. So, Dean, have you had any experiences? We've got Alex here. Have you had any experiences of your own with uh, folks that have passed on or gone into a building where you heard a bump in the night that you couldn't quite explain or things of that nature? So tell us a little bit about your experiences with this whole realm of the spiritual life and everything. Have you, have you ever had any experiences? Or if your wife ever told you about what she's had? I guess the spirits don't like me too much because I have not experienced um, something like that yet. I'll say that. Not to say that it can never happen, but I don't know. Maybe I sleep too hard or maybe they don't feel like dealing with me. You know what I mean? I've never um, been in that situation, so I can't really speak to it because I, I've never consciously, if I did, I don't remember it. Well, actually, as I said, we've only got about a minute to go, so I know I'm probably putting you in the spot asking you this question at this particular time. But Dean brings up a good question. What if somebody doesn't it feels that they aren't having any spiritual connections at all? Does that ever happen? Are there people that don't have a spiritual connection or don't ever have that spiritual tie and they will never have it? Is that or is it, or is it just that he's not reading what is happening in your mind, Alex? Well, I feel like everyone everyone is very much capable of, you know, receiving those spiritual connections and being in tune with their senses. It's all just about making that choice. You know, making that choice, if you really want to prioritize that, that's something that can absolutely happen. There's some people, and I'm not saying this is in your sense because I don't feel that with you, Dean. Um, I feel like some people are just, you know, completely closed off. Um, it could be religion. It could be many other factors, and that's why they're really not able to um, receive that. But I, I don't feel like that's, right. that's on your case either. Okay. So it sounds like you may have one eventually, according to that, because she's feeling a good vibe about you and everything. Really quickly, um, and like I said, I know we've got to wrap up the show and everything, and uh, we might even get to our usual thing of the ending of the show where we talk about what's coming up next. But what is your vibe on the straight talk with uh, Dean and Mark and both Dean and myself from a spiritual aspect, if you can answer in a minute or two? I feel like the I, I feel like you guys are both very spiritually connected and, and I love the sense of openness and, and the platform that you really provide for others to really speak their truth. And it felt really good for me to be on here today. I think you guys are doing such a great job and, and I really appreciate it. And I would absolutely love to be a guest sometime in the future. You guys have very good, very good vibes. 
Well, we appreciate it. We definitely try to put those good vibes out there, and we would definitely love to have you back on as well as the other guests also. Dean, if you want to, really quickly, if you could tell folks where they will find this lovely show of ours, and then next week we will have some more amazing guests as well. Actually, next week we're going to take the week off because it's Valentine's Day weekend, so I think that you're running away for the weekend, and you're going to probably come back. It's not that. It's a holiday, bro. It's, it's, It's President's Day that Monday, so... You know how we do. We we get that uh that holiday off, and then we go back to it on the 24th. But make sure y'all go see the photograph this weekend, man. My man Shadow Flack. I call him Shadow Flack. Y'all know him as Rob Morgan. He was also in the movie Just Mercy. Make sure you check him out and support the photograph coming out this Friday. Also, welcome to the Black News Channel that premiered in uh, certain markets today. So we're looking for great things to come from that. But it's Straight Talk with Dana Mark, y'all, Monday night, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Don't forget to catch our replay on the Skyhawk Radio Network tomorrow afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you miss those, we have replays on Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcast, Podcast Addict, Castbox, and right here, Blog Talk Radio. Like I always say, when you walk outside your front door, it's showtime in the world of your stage. Just make sure the people are not watching the rehearsal. With that being said, it's the six man Dean Geronimo. I'm out. Have an outstanding week, and we'll see y'all in 14 Eddie. days. In 14 days, and in 14 days, we will have Bruce Bridges, a well-known activist and owner of a black bookstore back in the day. They will talk about that work that he did at that bookstore and what he is doing now. He's worked with all kinds of folks, including one of the members of the Jackson 5. Also, we will have Shell Horowitz, a social entrepreneur and activist in his own right, and Tanya Brooks, a longtime entertainment person who is a 40-year veteran of the entertainment world out of Los Angeles. You know, we try to get guests from throughout the world, throughout this nation, and we are doing that on a continual basis. So in two weeks, we're looking to have another amazing show. Hope everybody out there is going to have some enjoyable time during this two week of uh, break because we will have a replay coming your way on the 17th. So don't feel like you don't have to get your dose of a straight talk with Dean and Mark. We have also joined Podchaser. So that is another platform that we are on as well. So you can actually give a review of the show as well as find out about other podcasts and things of that nature. So we've joined another platform as well. So check us out on Podchaser as well. And like I said, the replay, we'll be talking about digital economy and restorative justice. So check that one out, and we'll see you in two weeks live on the 24th of February.